Welcome to the second episode of VS World 2014 Recaps from Reality TV Warriors. My name is Michael Harmstone and joining me as always is the Canadian who is happy with big butts, Logan Saunders. Good afternoon. And the guy who we found some talent in behind all of the makeup, David Bindley. Good morning. Good morning. And this is another happy, very easy episode to follow. Doesn't introduce a twist that is going to be an absolute nightmare for the rest of the season. Not at all. So... Can someone explain more clearly what's going on with those envelopes? I'm going to sub Bindles in for this because I can't be bothered. Okay, so I assume you've worked out by now that that's going to be a challenge in the in episode nine. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so basically, you can send money to that challenge, and that's going to be the prize for the challenge. And then you sort of get interest based on how long ago you sent it. Okay. Do they do they say what percentage of interest? They don't say it, but you can sort of work it out. So if you send it now in episode two, there's seven episodes. So you get whatever you sent and then they double it again. And sort of every episode that goes by, they take off one seventh of that extra. So it's seven sevenths this week, six sevenths next week, five sevenths the week after and so on. That's a terrible fraction. Yeah, I know. It's super confusing, super annoying. I don't know why they didn't do it last week. I'll also say this now. Me and Bindles were chatting about this twist before we recorded, and we were trying to work out what the maximum prize for the market challenge is, because it's obviously no one picks any money up, so it doesn't actually get shown on the screen how much money they could earn. And logically, it has to be €2,000, because that is the only large enough bill that will then make a sensible number if you divide it by seven. To get the interest. All right, that's a good point. So it it has to be that because it's the only way to make a number that divides by seven well, essentially. So why did Tigo steal an envelope? Because Tico is an asshole, and this is the point of the season when you should start hating Tico because he stole an envelope in the start of this episode. He's already kicked Maurice when he was down at the end of last episode, and he kicks Owen when he's down when he gets executed at the end of this episode. He's a prick. Yeah, I'm just trying to understand what the reason is behind stealing an envelope. Is it to keep the mole from pretending to send an envelope and when they really put no money in it? Does he even target specifically which envelope he wants to steal? It was just, oh, I saw a brown envelope and I put it between my legs. What a lovely hiding place to go. He's just greedy. He just wants the chance to send two batches of money. That's all it is. But yeah, this is definitely the start of the Tico is a complete and utter prick edit that we get for the rest of the season. Tico might be my least favourite contestant ever. And I know people are expecting this season for me to hate on Tico, and I will be hating on Tico as soon as he's a prick to people. Yay! I said this during Renaissance. I don't understand why they brought Tico back from this season. There are so many better choices than Tico from this season. They could have brought back Owen. Yeah. They could have brought back Owen, whose family actually wanted him there, and who seemed genuinely actually appreciative of the experience, rather than just treating it like a sociopathic experiment that Tico seems to be doing. We already got the sense from episode one that Tico was going to be a complete prick, but, you know, he doubles down in this episode and gets double the envelopes as a result of it. Does their interest on Tigo's douchiness as each episode goes on? An extra one-seventh per episode? Yeah. The final episode of the season is just Tico being a prick for the entire 60 minutes. That's one way to get a Netflix special. 
So previously, ten allegedly well-known Dutch people flew to Hong Kong and learned about the Black Exemption. A surprise test and execution saw Daphne be a marked woman, and given the chance to save herself with the following ten questions. Sophie and Alf flirted with a local while not being able to speak English, while Jennifer and Susan were the only ones to find money. A frankly impossible co-transferring challenge saw the team fail, before Maurice got a red screen, and Tico didn't care. Art says the adventure didn't last long for Maurice, but the mole is happy with only 400 euros in the pot. With the role-changing challenge coming up, the pot may not change, but the better they do, the happier they will be, as predicting the future can be very lucrative for the winner of this season. And the episode title is Resourceful. We then get Arthur and Owen talking about how much they wanted to come to Hong Kong and how amazing it is. And this, of course, sets us up perfectly for the Cantonese Opera Challenge, where everyone hates on Cantonese Opera. We love Hong Kong. Oh, no. A cultural experience. Ah, shit, I didn't sign up for this. I was a little bit confused because I was led to believe there were no opera houses in Hong Kong. Why did you lie to me, Phil? Phil Kogan is a lying bastard. That's all I can say. And you can take that to the bank. Tweet Phil now and call him a lying bastard for me. To be fair, they did kind of establish that this was a makeshift one that essentially was just a circus tent, that they put some folding chairs out. Yeah, it wasn't a house, it was a tent. There's a legal difference. Maybe Phil didn't lie. Maybe this isn't another Switzerland-invented democracy moment. So Art interrupts their breakfast on day three and invites Owen and Susan for a cultural evening experience. The other seven get an envelope containing smaller envelopes. The note says that because money isn't always safe in Fiesta Mall, they can use the envelopes to keep potential money safe. They have to put money that they want to keep safe in an envelope and address it to another candidate, and address it to Episode 9 and Ellis Island. Money that arrives in Episode 9 stays for sure. If the person they address it to is still in the game, they will get extra money, and each person only gets one envelope to send money through the entire season. Why Ellis Island? Is that a clue? I don't think so. I think it's just what they call it. Because I don't even think the island that they actually send it to is called Ellis Island. Yeah, I was about to say, if whoever goes to Ellis Island in a few weeks, are they just going to stumble upon nine envelopes of cash and just think, oh, uh, that helps pay for my vacation? I think maybe they wanted them to think the season was going to end in New York. I will say also, the introduction note to this entire twist is a little bit disingenuous, because the money isn't safe when it goes to Ellis Island. The money still has to be collected at Ellis Island in that challenge. And if they don't collect it, it doesn't go back into the pot. Yeah, things get lost in the mail all the time too. You'll notice throughout the rest of the season that in every single hotel they stay in, no matter where they are, there is a little box that people can post envelopes into. And presumably production just collect them out of there and then just keep them safe. But there will always be a little brown Fiesta Mall box in uh, in the entrance area of every location that they stay in now, until episode 9. And as Bindle said, the later they send money, the less that it will be worth if that person is still there. Jan Willem claims Susan and Owen's envelopes. Tico plans to steal all three of them, but has to settle for just putting one of them on his crotch. It's a lovely image. And I'll also say I really don't like producer-induced divisions. I like them to actually have to discuss who's going to go and do a cultural evening or whatever, rather than just Art turning up and going, Susan and Owen, you guys, you get a cultural experience. You two look the most like the Chinese performers. Come with me. <laughs> do we know why they picked Owen and Susan? I get they probably wouldn't have picked Tigo and Freak after last week when they got the special role, but I don't know why they didn't pick anyone else. 
No, I don't know why it was Susan and Owen, and I don't think we actually find out at the end of the season or in any interviews. Do they both work in theater? Who was the film festival person? Was that Susan? That's Daphne. Oh, well, there, there it goes. And Owen plays with hand puppets. Yeah, Susan's an actress and Owen's a comedian, so maybe it was just a, these guys will probably fit in the best and make this challenge actually work. But still, I would have rather they they had an option of who it was going to be. So Susan and Owen are taken to a theatre for some Cantonese opera. The other seven will be in the audience and will be expecting them to participate. But of course, nothing is what it seems, and they won't be participating. After the performance, the other seven will pick two actors who they think Susan and Owen could have been, and Susan and Owen will earn 2,000 euros for the pot if they correctly guess who the other seven picked. I'm going to say this now. Any other version, they would have made Susan and Owen actually be in the opera, but there is not a chance that they are even indulging in a bit of yellow face here. Any other location, they probably would have made them participate, but not in China. Yeah, and they were even, even, even the group of seven suspected that, hmm, Susan Owen may not even be in that performance. Yeah, it's just asking for for some hate tweets if they try and put white people from the Netherlands in Cantonese opera and give them makeup to change their appearance. And then probably put on a mildly offensive uh, Cantonese accent when performing. Although Tigo already did that last week. That's true. <laughs> and we kind of skipped over that because, you know, it's fun to mock Tico. It's not fun when Tico's being racist. So the other seven get the story of the show, but no more information than that. And it's fair to say they are not the biggest fans of Cantonese opera. Cantonese opera gets ripped apart during this task. Everyone is annoyed at how loud it is, that it's impossible to follow. And I can't think of a group of people that hated a cultural experience on Vita more than this group did with Cantonese theatre. Yeah, 99% of the time I'd be like, oh, you couldn't do this anywhere else, this is a brilliant challenge. But it's kind of hampered by the fact that everybody involved hates their life when they're doing this challenge. I mean, my favourite quote is probably Jan Willem saying that if he played it on his show, he'd be fired. (laughs) (laughs) And this is a man who works with Euroan on a daily basis. Euroan as Elvis Presley is one thing. But Cantonese theatre would cost Jan Willem his job. This is a man who risks his job every day by being around the fireable offence that is your own, and he still hates Cantonese opera more. I will say, I think, I think it's you know reasonably well structured as far as a challenge with this idea can be. It's just it needs more chaos to sort of distract from the performance. Like the performance needs to be more of a background thing. It's. A bit like the Georgia Theatre Challenge, where you've where you you know you've got the performance and that's fine, but nobody really cares about the performance because we're watching everything else. This because we're not really caring about you know what the contestants are doing. It's kind of hard to get invested a little bit, and it's it's also a lot less active a challenge because seven of them are sitting in the audience not knowing what the hell they're going to actually have to do at the end of it, and two of them are sat on the side of the stage knowing what they've got to do, but not really doing anything. Yeah, it's more of just everyone's, it's just confessional after confessional to help push the narrative of this challenge along. It's a really cool cultural challenge, and you couldn't do it anywhere else, which is the mark of a good uh, Vidim challenge for me. But it fails a little bit in the execution just because people really aren't doing anything. 
I don't know that you couldn't have done it anywhere else. I think if Belgi had done it this season in the Canary Islands with like the Drag Queen Challenge, I don't think this would have felt out of place. No, I mean specifically the Cantonese Opera bit. Like Cantonese Opera, as as we all know from multiple seasons of Amazing Race, is a very distinct cultural thing. So it's really cool they managed to include it in a challenge. It's just the challenge is a bit of a, a lame duck outside of the actual cultural aspects of it. If they just given him a night off and said, you're going to go to the Cantonese opera, I think it would have fit a lot better. And then obviously surprised him with some sort of challenge, like an observation challenge of some description. I think it was Freak who said that the main character sounded like he was on helium. I found a tank when I was in a, when I was a child. I inhaled and inhaled, and it's just, it's never going to go away. And now I can't stop getting high. <laughs> I also love the heel turn that the editors do with this, which is just like a full minute and a half of them roasting Cantonese opera. And then, obviously, they got a note from the producer going, you do realise that, you know, it's a little bit insensitive how much people are hating on this. You need to find some sort of positive angle for it. So then we just get a barrage of, actually, it was pretty cool in the end, as long as, you know, once you got into it, it was a lot cooler than maybe you thought with crashing cymbals and people having really high voices and ruining your hearing. There were two other really awkward things that happened during the scene, too, where the contestants are trying to figure out which one Susan could be. And they go for the fattest woman on stage saying, oh, that could be Susan. Or they were also saying, oh, no, Owen and Susan were fixated on the height of all the actors. They said, well, I wonder if everyone else is just going to pick the two tallest actors after the challenge is over. Yeah, that that would be bad for, you know, picking somebody out of a crowd just because they're tall. I mean, that's not going to happen later this season at all. Yeah, this challenge was obviously a mess, but... It was kind of a a fun mess in that we got the Cantonese opera and everyone hated on it, but you don't tend to see many challenges in any mole where the cast just absolutely despise their existence, even though it's a cool thing culturally. Yeah, I think Sophie wanted to go to an audiologist after the challenge was over, claiming she had lost a percentage of her hearing. Jennifer was really bitchy with her comments as well. Anytime someone vaguely tone-deaf or ugly came on, she was just like, oh yeah, that's Owen. Yeah, that's, that could be Owen. That bald person's Owen. That old person is Owen. The really fat person is Owen. So Owen and Susan have the logical conclusion that they should probably pick someone who doesn't have lines, which rules out the tallest people. Sophie seems to think that Owen's able to shapeshift, and he's good, but not that good. And after the show ends, Art meets them outside with pictures of the cast. Tico suggests that Owen could have been playing the general, a main character in the opera. And they do settle on Susan playing the prince and Owen playing the general. They pick the two people with the most speaking lines in the play. Do you think anyone was sabotaging in that? Yes. And I think there is a lot of shifting of... Because they brought up the whole lip-syncing defense. I think they, they show... Daphne initially throwing out the idea of, oh, they could be lip-syncing, so they could be the general and the prince. But if they if they ignore the lip-syncing bit, then they for sure, you think, you think they for sure would have ruled out anybody who had speaking lines. But I think they were so fixated on the lip-syncing bit, because that's the only logical reason I could think of for why they would pick the prince and the general as the two people that Owen and Susan played. Even even when Susan finds out that that's who they pick, Susan says, what? 
but you you heard us in the challenge. No, neither of us can speak a word of Cantonese. Something I didn't point out last episode, but I very much want to point out here, is Susan gives such good reactions to things. She is really, really confused as to how they can pick two people who spoke. And our banner in last episode was actually picked by Bindles, and I didn't mention this. And it was Owen's reaction to getting a green screen in the first execution. And Susan kind of looking at him a bit weirdly. Like, keep an eye out for Susan's reactions, because she's very subtly funny with them. So Jan Willem then distributes the envelopes to Owen and Susan, and realises that one of the envelopes is missing, and he says only two people could have done it, Daphne and Jennifer. He is, of course, completely wrong. And then there's absolutely no personal scenes, because we see them being driven into the countryside on day four, into the island of Kowloon. They are dropped off in an abandoned building, the former head office of a TV station, and Vidim Icon Arf says that it's the ideal hippie loft, windows, lights, graffiti, industrial floors, just ready to move into. (laughs) But the Chinese haven't discovered it yet. They're explorers. They're pioneers. Another thing you will notice is that Arf is absolutely the editor's go-to for any sort of reactions in a confessional, because she is so sarcastic about things in this season. She just snipes everything. And this is just an absolute half classic, basically. So dotted around the building are five locations with money. In order to get the money, they've got to complete a mini-challenge within a time limit, or they are out of the game. Only two people can go to each location at a time, and they have 75 minutes total to find the locations, earn the money, and put it into the pot. This is a very classic Vidum staple. Yeah, they love a they love a control room challenge. In the same way they love a laser game, they love a control room challenge. Each screen has a clue to the challenge, 150kg, pallet labyrinth, bleep, rope on the roof, and the quiz. And it is Freakin' Tigo and Sophie and Jennifer who leave first. Freakin' Tigo try and go to 150kg, and Sophie volunteers to enter the crawling labyrinth with Jennifer, who says she wanted to team up with Sophie because she's not observed her much. Freak says he's excited to do some James Bond stuff. Because in all of James Bond's most famous films, he does pull a sled with 150 kgs of sandbags on them. I love how he's like, oh, finally we get to do a James Bond thing. I'm like, you're halfway through episode two, Freak. Calm down. Cool your beans. You've not even found a laser game. Maybe the sled was made by Aster Martin. Yeah, maybe. Which one of the many tasks here would you have wanted to do? I think I obviously would have been drawn to the quiz because it's me. But I think I think a lot of them were quite easy, actually. I think they were quite generous, with the exception of Rope on the Roof, which is obviously impossible. I think the other four are actually pretty doable. I would say the wooden pallet maze was fun. I, I think they wanted them to get a lot of the money here just because of that mail twist, because we've basically had three impossible challenges in a row now. It, you know, it kind of defeats the purpose of having that twist if they don't have any money to spend on it. Yeah, because if you think about it, the 150 kgs, when they do do it, Tico does it on his own, basically. Yeah, in about five seconds. He just kind of yanks the rope and then they uncover the 500 euros. But yeah, rope on the roof's impossible, unless you've got seven minutes for it. The other three are pretty easy. Didn't they have 19 minutes left on the clock when this challenge ended? That's what I noticed, yeah. That's a lot of time for Vidim. Yeah, because they have 75 minutes total. And the actual mini challenges only total about 15-20 minutes between them. Yeah, and multiple pairs can do the mini-challenges at the same time. 
So that was an extremely generous time limit. Yeah, like Bindle said, I think they just wanted to to make sure they had some money to potentially be able to send to Ellis Island at this point. So Sylvie and Jennifer find the labyrinth, and their five-minute timer starts. All Jennifer can think of is Yoka's. So whatever happens, screw the money, she's going into that labyrinth. Everyone gets a little bit obsessed with Yoka's in this challenge. Yeah, because even Jan Willem on the roof just starts searching for Yoka's. He says, oh, seven minutes expired, I'm just going to rip this roof apart now. What they should have done is hidden them in the control room. Just hide them under the table. Give them like 20 Yoka's if they can find them under the table. And then just have like a model boat with, you know, under the table printed on it in Spanish. And that's a reference logo we'll not get. There is a card at the start of the maze saying the answer is in the control room. And there is a big maze map painted behind the screens. Not that anyone notices it throughout the entirety of this challenge. Jennifer says she could eat less. It's not built for women with big butts. And Sophie tells us to just be happy with her big butt. Yeah, female empowerment. Body positivity. It's entirely what this challenge is all about. And then I think on Twitter, there was a bunch of people getting angry saying that Venom 2014 was too woke at the time. It's Jennifer finds the envelope in the exit, but she doesn't trust Sophie at all, and the envelope contains 500 euros in one note. Freak and Tico stumble on the wire assignment, which is the quiz. They have to cut the wires of the correct answers to what seems to be two questions. They said it was three, but we only were told two of them, right? Yeah, and we don't know the option to the second question, so I think they were just bored by the entirety of a quiz challenge and just sent them on. What is the capital of the Netherlands? Well, the first question is actually quite sneaky because it's something we mentioned last episode because it asks which which Dutch province Hong Kong is as big as. And we know from Art's intro at the start of the season that it's Belua. And Susan actually tells them the correct answer, which is B, and Tico cuts the blue wire. The second question is which person in the cast ranked themselves 10 out of 10 for stress resistance, and they cut the yellow wire for nobody, and the envelope drops down. And that's all we see at the quiz challenge. I wonder who has who did rank themselves as being the most stress resistant. I think it could have been Eric, actually, from uh, from Japan, because he just finds stress so, so, what's the word? Stimulating. That's the one. Yeah. It wasn't Maurice, I know that. Poor Maurice. Or should that be Vincent? Jesus Christ. <laughs> so Daphne and Jan Willem head to the roof where something is happening with ropes and pulling. Daphne says she chose Jan Willem because she caught him chatting to Tico about Yokers and wants to keep an eye on him. They have seven minutes as soon as they enter the rooftop and completely miss the rope for the challenge. They walk around for at least three minutes before finding the rope, but still don't find the bucket containing the 500 euros. And Jan Willem was the one manning the walkie-talkie and... Not getting much communication from the control room. Couldn't help but observe that. Yeah, Sophie completely ignores them because she's busy with Tico and Freak at this point. She just doesn't care. What? Tigo was talking a lot on the walkie-talkie? Whoa. That doesn't sound like Tico, does it? And then we get off on the walkie-talkie when her and Susan are trying to find that dark room to absolutely no avail. I love Arf and Susan as a pair so much. Because even though, as we found out last episode, Arf is only 39, she just has old woman energy and bumbles through any challenge she's given. The best bit is I actually miscalculated that. She was 38. Arf is actually losing years every <laughs> time we podcast. She, it's a reverse Benjamin button. 
sometimes we say that the podcast ages us, but I think it's reverse aging off. And then Freak blames Sophie as the one mishandling the walkie-talkie when talking to off. So I'm thinking, is that a misdirection by the editors? You two would know. <laughs> we would know, and I'm trying very hard not to say anything. <laughs> you just get a, hmm, interesting. Yeah, because I wrote down who was on the walkie-talkies for this assignment, because every single season, whoever's on the walkie-talkie is sabotaging it. Yeah, every season the mole sabotages a walkie-talkie assignment, and every single season we go, oh yeah, the mole must be doing something with the walkie-talkies, and we never manage to catch them in the act. Well, I assume it'd be edited out each time, otherwise it'd be too obvious. Has there ever been a season without a walkie-talkie challenge? Definitely not in Vidim. It's it's a staple because it just causes chaos and allows the mole to have a little bit of fun. I'm trying to think. I think letting the mole have a bit of fun is kind of the MO of most challenges when it comes to Vidim because the producers have to remember that the mole, yes, they're obviously getting paid to be there and yes, they're obviously getting paid to sabotage, but they need to have a little bit of fun with some of their sabotages. And there is no better way than messing with people on a walkie-talkie assignment for the mole. I just think back to Rob and how much fun he had with that that parking lot assignment and just constantly pressing the button on people. Big walkie-talkie made a good investment on this show. Yeah. In the same way that uh, Amazing Race Canada loves its random sponsors, Vidum should just be sponsored by walkie-talkie companies at this point because they get a lot of mileage out of them. So yeah, Arf and Susan try and find Bleep. Sophie says that she saw them in the background of the bleep screen, but the time hasn't started yet, so obviously they haven't found it. And Tico tries to mount a coup when it comes to the walkie-talkies. Daphne spots the pot containing 500 euros, and they've got to fish it up from the rooftop. And they have one minute left to do it. And the rope is long enough, but has a lot of knots in it. And they run out of time and are stuck on the rooftop, and spend the rest of their time just looking for yokers. Alf and Susan then get summoned back, because, you know, they're wasting a lot of time. Tico and Owen are sent out to try and find 150 kgs. Owen finds it quickly by doing what we all should do and just ignoring Tico. They have got five minutes to drag the sled, under which they find an envelope containing 500 euros, literally five seconds after they walk into the room. And Tico thanks Owen for his partnership by referring to him and the others as motherfuckers. Yeah, and that's not even the worst Tico's going to be in this episode. You stay classy, San Diego. He is not a happy bunny when it comes to that test twist. Freak and Owen then try and find Bleep. They search for a while before realising they need to go to the basement. They've got three minutes to follow a bleeping tablet to the envelope containing 500 euros, which they do. Is that all they had to do, which is find the Bleep? Yeah. yeah, it was just follow a Bleep to find it in this dark room. And there weren't any significant obstacles from what we saw. It was just low, right? Yeah, it was just on the floor. Chef Prope's niece could do that several years ago. Art walks in and congratulates them for making 2,000 euros or 2,500 for the challenge, and Frake tells us he's still the treasurer, and he's already thought about sending money away and not telling anyone. I'm invested in crypto. In a similar way to what we said about Japan, there is not a lot of inefficiency in this episode. It's very like challenge, next challenge, next challenge. There's no kind of personal scenes outside of everyone hating Cantonese opera. Because we cut immediately to Art saying the next assignment could be crucial to the season. Yeah, this one takes up nearly half the episode. I will say this now, I know that we have a bit of a bugbear with recurring challenges, 
but this is the perfect way to introduce a new twist because there is actually a risk to people taking it. Obviously, someone was going to end up taking the black exemption no matter what, just because they want the power. But if you're going to introduce a game-breaking twist like the black exemption in a season, this is how you introduce it. You don't award it as part of a challenge. You make them earn it as part of a challenge and actually risk something bigger. My favorite part when they're deciding on which order to go into the market for this challenge, that op says, we should go alphabetical. And everyone else doesn't realize that the first two letters of her name are AA. I love how shameless she is with this. She knows exactly what she's doing. In her defense, it also makes Tigo last, so I'm all on board. She kills two birds with one stone. I mean, if we were ranking people this season, Arf would definitely be at the top and Tico would definitely be at the bottom. So this is a perfect order. I like how they say, well, should we go by age, where Arf somehow is first in that, <laughs> or go alphabetical? It's a win-win for her. Arf, I know you're 38, but you just you seem like you're in your late 50s to me. So you can just go first honorarily. <laughs> So yeah, inexplicably, Arth manages to con the group into letting her go into the market first, and she is told that she has already survived one test, the test is determined by the amount of correct answers, and the time that they take to answer the questions. I like how Art has to re-explain how the mole works. For the second time in two episodes. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, do they know what show they're on? In the event of a tie, the slowest person goes home. Each of them will individually enter the market behind him to take the test, and their time will start as soon as they enter the market. However, they need to keep their eyes open, as there isn't just a test hidden in the market. It is now time for the test. 20 questions about the identity and actions of the mole. Whoever knows least will go home, except for the mole who can never go home. Normally I'd reel off who has advantages here, but they've not earned them yet, so follow along, children. The items are first come, first served. And there is money, a black exemption, some green exemptions, yokers, and the test hidden in the market. And I'm presuming, given the context we get, that they're only allowed to claim one thing. That's what I figured as well. Because otherwise, you know as well as I do, Arf would have claimed everything just for funsies. We would have all loved it. I would have loved it so much if we just got some B-roll of Arf walking to every stall and just picking up every advantage, all of the money. All of the exemptions, the black exemption, the yokers, and just going, hmm, what do they expect when they let double AF go in first? If you're in this challenge, which one do you grab? I think you grab an exemption and you don't play it, if you're given the choice. That's probably what I'd do too, and then if, like, if all the exemptions are gone, do you go for the black exemption, or the jokers, or the money? I think if, as a second port of call, you go for black exemption, just so you know who it is. And as much as I loathe being inspired by Boston Rob. In Redemption Island, he basically said that the most important thing when it comes to idols is just knowing who has it. So if it's in your possession, it's not in anyone else's. So I think you probably would think the same thing with a black exemption here and go, well, if I can't have a green exemption, I want the black exemption just so I know exactly who has it. And nobody else can find it or use it against me. Because I don't even think they know whether the black exemption gives its holder immunity like a green exemption would at this point. Were they told ahead of time that it was going to be anonymous as to who collects the, as to who would play the black exemption? I presume so. And that, all, and that the Yokers, the Yokers and the, the Yokers were anonymous too, right? 
Yeah, the Yakuza were anonymous, the green exemptions weren't. And the only reason that Art announced who had the green exemptions and who played them is because if the black exemption wasn't played, then everyone else needed to know who, who was safe and who couldn't go home. That's the wrinkle to the black exemption, is the fact that because it then makes all green exemptions be non-episode specific, Art does need to announce who played a green exemption no matter what, in the event that they might be safe from the test. Has that been a consistent rule that only the green exemption uh, players have their identities revealed? I think they always do announce who plays a green exemption. Yeah, they don't, they don't ever announce who's played the Jokers. No, I think you're supposed to sort of keep track of who's got them from the challenges because most of the time, I think there's only been one or two times where it's actually been hidden in a challenge. And usually it's, they're all you know fairly obvious to see the Jokers. And you just got to keep track of who's still got them. Yeah, purely from a production admin point of view, they do have to reveal who played a green exemption. I don't think there is a way around it. Because otherwise, in the event of this, three people could have played a green exemption and nobody could play the black exemption, which reduces everyone else's odds down to potentially one in five if the mole doesn't play an exemption. I presume production knew nobody was going to bother going for the money in this challenge. Oh god, yeah. Which is why we don't even find out how much it was. I'm just kind of assuming that it was two grand. We know it's at least 900, because that was what was briefly visible in the B-roll. So it may have just been a thousand, but that still obviously doesn't work with dividing by seven. But I'm I'm sort of assuming that it was probably two 1,000 batches and therefore 2,000. Because the, the yokers got replenished. There were only two yokers hidden each time. But Tico had the option to uh, to find Yokas. So there were two batches of Yokas they got replenished, so I presume the money probably would have had someone early enough in the in the run taken the money. Hopefully no one in the I wonder if somebody in the somebody in the market there and a local was able to just pick up the money and you know, just get get those zeros exchanged. Just like grab one exemption and, and one black exemption, just use them as earrings. Yeah, just walk around. <laughs> I mean, hand on heart, if you knew that they were filming this challenge and you were in Hong Kong, would you have snuck into the market and stolen an exemption? Because I would have. 100%. I've been incredibly unsubtle in my, my Belkia quest for an exemption. I really want one. Or Arth is just... Uh, she, she, go, she goes and goes to the laptop, but somebody's already sitting in the chair checking social media. I won't be long, I've just got to check my tweets. Oh no, it's been blocked. It's been censored. Damn you, firewall. I have to use Weibo instead. At least at this point, the Great Firewall of China didn't affect Hong Kong. I'm not sure about now. Hong Kong was still very much uh, unfiltered, and in fact I could use my mobile there. I could use my data without it being blocked. But yeah, I'm interested about how the logistics of this challenge worked in terms of how spread out people were going into the market. Because there was obviously the potential, if someone didn't dawdle and tried to go straight for the test, that they could have overlapped. So they had to send people in literally one at a time and only let them in when the next person did the test. But I like the idea that someone could have been already using the laptop and screwed someone else over, potentially. Do you think they expected the black exemption to be used straight away? I think so. I think, like I said, I would have gone for the green exemption rather than the black exemption, and I wouldn't have played it, purely because you assume as soon as someone picks up the black exemption, they go, well, I'm not getting an advantage out of this. I've read the rules on the black exemption now. It doesn't make me safe if I play it, so 
why wouldn't I just play it now and make sure that it's a level playing field? So I think you do what Susan did, and you wait at least one more round and go, well, I know there's not a black exemption now, because they probably would have lampshaded it in one of the challenges, so I'm safe to play it now. And because of all the other advantages being introduced at the same time, they're probably thinking, well, most people are going to be playing their Yokers or Green Exemptions right now. Yeah, especially early in the season where you don't really know who the mole is unless you're Fritz. You probably start playing some advantages early on, which makes it the perfect time to then play Black Exemption and go, you guys thought you were safe? You're not anymore. I know in the past that had a challenge where basically you could turn exemptions into like a proper non-elimination and people did that straight away. So like I get that there's precedent for using this, the black exemption straight away. I'm not entirely sure whether producers sort of realized it was going to be done, you know, this episode and then just sort of completely destroy their twist straight away. Cause when it comes back later in the season, it feels like it's just been uh, like tacked on as an afterthought. Yeah, I think they probably assumed that it was going to get used at least this round or next round. I certainly don't think that they thought that anyone was going to hold on to it. Because why would you hold on to an advantage like a black exemption when you can level the playing field and give people absolutely no advantage over you? Do you think that the black exemption needs tweaking? This is something I think we've discussed previously. But I, I don't really think there's a perk to using the black exemption. I think it would be better if you could, like, if it was an exemption that cancelled all of the other advantages, but, like, you stayed exempt. But then, at the same time, that would make it too overpowered. Yeah, I think the only advantage for having a black exemption at the moment is knowing where it is and knowing when it's safe to, to be able to play your exemptions or yokers. But I, I never feel like there's a good outcome with a black exemption. I always feel like it's a bit of a, a disappointment, no matter when it appears. Hmm. It's been coming close to 10 seasons now, and I don't think it's ever really been interesting after this first time. No, the threat is better than the actual execution when it comes to a black exemption, I think. So Arf is the first person, and she just decides to head straight to the laptop and hits a woman with her rucksack, which is peak Arf (laughs) material. She has to apologize. Oops, sorry. Uh, she goes for a top four of people as she wants to be safe and picks Susan, Owen, Frake, and Sophie. Daphne is next. She wants the green exemption. Lots of the vendors want to sell her things, but she finds two yokers and decides to leave them behind. She grabs one of the three exemptions that are hidden there and doubts whether to play it, but decides to. Frake is third. He just heads to the test and doesn't find anything. Yeah, he just gives up. He's like, ah, I'll just do the test. He could have at least gone for money. Yeah, at this point in the season, I'm not sure I'm not sure whether time is that much of a threat. At this point in the season, you probably can survive with a score of one. Especially when you've got a numpty like Owen who goes all in on test two. And Frake says that he has one standout candidate so far, which is Arf. Obviously, she's my standout too. Jan Willem is fourth. He looks for things that all look alike, but details are not his thing. Eventually, he finds the exemptions, but there are only two of the three left. He takes one of them, but struggles to find the laptop, and plays his exemption. Jennifer is fifth. She says that she doesn't know who thinks that a woman can multitask, as she definitely can't. She sees nothing, thought it would get easier. Daphne and her have a bond, despite Daphne being on her suspect list. Yeah, Jennifer is clearly overwhelmed when she's in the market. 
very stressed. Her stress resistance is not a 10. Now, those aisles were very narrow anyway, and obviously it's still a working business. Those vendors are still trying to sell you stuff, and you're running around with a camera. Yeah, like what if they had money out on the counter? Would you just think, oh, that's the money for this challenge and take it, and the locals get angry at you? That'd be stressful. Owen is a sick person. He finds the yokers quickly and takes them. He puts his test mainly on one person, and as a result, if he gets a green screen, he's practically sure that he knows who it is. However, he could just be having tunnel vision. Yeah, I wrote down, hmm, I think Owen is done for here. Going all in on quiz number two. It's one of the Logan Saunders rules. Don't go all in until final five. And even then, there's a reason when we do our suspicions that we don't taper down to one suspect each until, like, episode seven. Sophie is seventh. She says nobody knows where anything is and prioritizes the test, but finds the black exemption and claims it. She says the black exemption is the most honest power in Feast of all, as everyone is judged equally. And we don't see whether she plays it. I like how she even hesitates to touch it. She touches it first and says, nah, I'm just going to leave it. Wait, no. Okay, I'll be the guinea pig for this twist. I think if you walk past the black exemption and you find it, you probably do claim it just because then you know where it is, even if it doesn't get played. If there's another wire-cutting challenge next season, maybe you'd be the answer to that trivia question, who was the first person to claim a black exemption? Susan is the eighth person up. She knew as number eight that she wouldn't find the black exemption, so goes for a green one instead. None of the aisles are straight, but she does find the final exemption hidden. She decides not to play the exemption, assuming someone's found the black one. She hopes that she can stay and pick Sophie as her mole. And then we get Hurricane Tico. <laughs> I had forgotten that Tico flips a double bird here. With his confessional is ridiculous when he enters the market, he says, I think nobody dare to go for the last box. I'm the only one daring enough to walk the extra five meters to that last box because I am motherfucking Tigo. He is the closest that we have ever had to a professional wrestling villain on VSTMO. Because he is unapologetic about being a prick in the first two episodes of this season. And I know I came into the season going, oh yeah, Tico is one of the worst people ever on Vidim for me. And I genuinely couldn't remember why I hate him so much. And after two episodes, I remember why I hated him so much. He's a prick. Coming in from Holland at 143 pounds, at five foot six, recovering from a severe drug addiction, it's tyrannical Tigo. It's funny because most most of this cast, I don't remember how I felt about them by the end of the season. Like I don't remember whether I liked or hated John Willem by the end, but I remembered straight from the start, Tigo is the worst. Yeah, I remembered three things. One was that I love Arf. Two was that I hate Tico. And three is that the public really hated Jan Willem. I can't remember why, but they really hate Jan Willem. So Tico is the final one in the market, and he says the rest wouldn't dare take that final box. Sadly for him, that wasn't the case, and he claims two yokers, and he seems to have had a shave and plays his two yokers, but not before flipping the bird at everybody involved. Maybe it has a different meaning in Cantonese. I'm not sure it does, because I'm pretty sure he accompanies it with a fuck you guys. Maybe it's a, well, it's a tonal, it's a tonal language, right? Maybe he's got PTSD from the opera. 
So Art announces that Daphne and Jan Willem played exemptions, and that Yokers were also played, but there is the question of the black exemption. It was indeed played, which means all Yokers and exemptions are null and void, and the person going home will be the person who scored the lowest on the test. Sorry, Janet. Nobody claimed any cash either, meaning they earned nothing of, I presume, €2,000 for the challenge, and €2,000 of 6500 for the episode, and 2400 of 10500 for the season so far, none of which has been sent to Ellis Island. They could have earned an extra 10500 from Ellis Island with the interest. Seems obvious to say right now, but that will get far more complicated throughout the entire season, and you'll appreciate the running figures when I do them. Jan Willem, Daphne, Tico and Sophie all get green screens before Owen and his terrible prediction get the red. Everyone seems quite shocked and will miss him, apart from Tico, who is an irrepressible prick to him. And Freak uh, has some interesting math here. He says when you tour uh, with a production together, you get closer 40 to 50 times faster than you would in real life. Uh, so with Off being 38 or 52, I guess, uh, maybe that, that's screwing up her aging as well. It's like they've been around her for 20 years by uh, by the end of this episode. It only feels like they've been around Tigo for 20 years. <laughs> but it's only been four days. So he says that he was tunnel visioned and convinced of his mold today. His montage includes the Chinese opera, which he didn't even perform in. And he says his kids will be disappointed, but at least it will be exciting for them. Susan admits to the rest of the group that she had an exemption which she didn't play, but Sophie doesn't admit that she had the black one. A lot of fingers are being pointed. And Tigo's pointing a lot of middle fingers. Uh, Susan, why was she freaking out and crying so much over keeping her green exemption? I think she was just relieved that she managed to actually have good judgment on it and and not play the exemption which she would have lost. Also another person whose stress resistance level is not a 10. So next time, Ark kidnaps Daphne and Arf. Jennifer drops a phone, there is a dragon boat race, Art gets up from the execution, which isn't normal, and money is finally posted to Ellis Island. Oh, and Tigo assumed Owen had the black exemption. He's wrong. As with a lot of things in Vidim, Tico is wrong about this. So, who do you suspect Mr. Saunders? Alright, I'll go through it. So, number one suspect is Jan Willem. Number two is Off. Number three is Sophie. Number four is Jennifer. Number five is Freak. Number six is Susan. Number seven was Owen. So a big contrast to where I had Maurice after episode one. And number eight, Daphne. Very interesting. Do you want to eulogize Owen? Do we need to eulogize Owen? Is there anything to eulogize him about? He was somewhat funny. He seems like he's the sort of person who would have been okay if he'd lasted longer, but with this cast, I don't. aside from Tigo, I don't know if there's anyone I would have cut to see him last, last another episode. Yeah, he, he's nice enough. What do you got to call back for Renaissance? Probably not, especially if they were intent on Tico coming back. But he was a nice enough presence for the first two episodes. I liked his glasses. Yeah, he's just not necessarily a huge loss for the season. Have you guys got anything else you want to say? Nope, I'm just so sad that Owen is gone. We've gone from Owen to no Owen. You just, you're sounding like Tico. It's just so disingenuous right now. <laughs> yeah. So, 
Thank you for listening to our Vista Mall 2014 recap. We'll be back next week to continue the hunt for an old mall in Hong Kong and the Philippines. Don't forget you can contact us on Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, or Instagram where we are RTV Warriors. Or you can email us at contact at rtvwarriors.com. Logan's on Twitter at Logsakawaki. Bindle's Instagram recapper, and I am MJ Harmstone. Don't forget you can also support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash rtvwarriors. Thank you as always to Marika for the subtitles. We'll see you next week. Peace out and just chill till the next flavoring. I'm going to go be happy with my buttocks. <laughs>